Welcome to the Indigenous Approach, the official podcast of the Army's First Special Forces Command, a podcast too unconventional to be called conventional. Welcome back to the Indigenous Approach Podcast. So today we got a special episode with two guest hosts, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gaines. He's the Command's G6, and he's done a lot of research and work on creativity. And he's also joined by his research partner, Dr. Angus Fletcher, who's a story science professor from Ohio State University. So today you're going to hear him talk about creativity and the importance of applying creativity and using it for an effective leadership style. And it's a great conversation, and I hope everybody enjoys it. So without further ado, here's Colonel Gaines and Dr. Fletcher. Good morning. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Tom Gaines. I'm the G6 here at First Special Forces Command, and I'm taking over the podcast to talk about a collaboration that's been going on with Ohio State University. So in the booth with me, I've got uh, Dr. Angus Fletcher. You know, Angus, uh, you've been doing a lot of work with with NAXA, with Google X, with a bunch of like Fortune 15 companies. Now, where Where is this all coming from? Well, the truth is, Tom... It's coming from the U.S. Army, and in particular, it's coming from U.S. Army Special Operations. But let me maybe take you back to the beginning of kind of how I got started on this line of work, this this line of research. It started for me back when I was 17 years old. I was, uh, like a lot of 17-year-olds, just walking to college for the first time. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I thought it was a waste of my time. I was in classes where I was reading these textbooks that seemed to have no relationship whatsoever to my life or what I wanted to do. I was in these classes taught by professors who were really smart, really well-meaning individuals who'd never lived real lives outside of the academy. I felt like I was in this completely artificial structure and system that was essentially socializing me to think in a particular way that would allow me to get a job inside the system, but wasn't preparing me for real life or wasn't kind of preparing me to be the kind of person that, that I imagined I want to be. And so I decided I was going to drop out. I decided I was going to drop out of college. And I probably would have dropped out, except for I was randomly assigned to this class, uh, an anthropology class, taught by this professor from Iran. And when I say that he was from Iran, I really mean he was from Iran. He had come to the United States just a few months earlier, incredibly thick accents, hair, outfit, like you wouldn't believe, totally not American. And as I was sitting there in the back of the class with the other students, we were just thinking like, who is this weird guy? What is he saying? What is he doing? But as I started to listen to him, I started to realize that he was an incredible person. And I realized what was incredible about him was that he had grown up in this oppressive regime where he'd been told what to think, he'd been told what to read, what to study, and he had defied that system. And he had found books, he had found teachers that were banned, and he had educated himself. And because of that, he had drawn the attention of the regime, and they had arrested him, and they had warned him to stop his studies, and they'd warned him to stop teaching the things that he was researching. And he had defied the regime. And eventually he'd had a death sentence put on him. And so he'd been forced to flee Iran and come to the United States where he was now. And he was teaching this class. And I realized for the first time in my life, here was a teacher who believed so much in what he was teaching that he was willing to die for it. He had found things that he cared so deeply about and he thought were so relevant to the world that he was willing to risk everything for it. 
And that started to change my life. I started to listen to him. I was really impressed by him. And after I took that first class with him, I went home for winter break and came back, planned to take another class with him and thinking to myself, I want to dedicate myself to my studies. I want I want to, to really learn from wise people like this person who can, who can teach me from their experience and can show me the value of an education. And I got back there preparing to sign up for a class with him. And I uh, went and looked through the course book and his name wasn't in there. I thought that was weird. So I went over to the anthropology office and I said, hey, I said, uh, I want to take another class with this professor. And they looked at me and they pulled me aside and they said, well, we have to tell you something. And I said, what? I said, well, you know, he decided that uh, he wanted to go back to Iran to visit some of his students. So he went back a few weeks ago under an assumed identity and he got captured and he got executed. So he won't be back here to teach any more classes. And that moment just had a transformative effect on me because I, I realized that what you learned in school could be the most important thing in your life. And that as a teacher, you could learn things and you could teach things that you would risk everything for. And so I just set about in my own life to try and find those things that I cared so much about that I would risk my life to research them. And I also just reminded myself every day, you've got to be brave in the classroom. You've got to challenge complacency in the classroom. You've got to seek new ideas. And you've always got to be working for the benefit of the people around you. And through my career, I've been really lucky to work with a lot of teachers, scholars, institutions who have shared that intensity and that commitment. But I've never encountered an organization like your organization. And you know, I think that, that when I started to, to kind of work here and do research here in this community, I felt for the first time, like I felt that intensity as I had as a 17-year-old back in that professor's class that I was working with people who would, who would die for knowledge and would die to spread knowledge. So that's kind of the history of kind of how I ended up here. And that's kind of the history a little bit of, of, of some of the stuff that we started to work on. If we pull that back a little bit, a little bit more about your background. So that professor you met at the University of Michigan had a neuroscience undergrad, and then you transitioned to a, a PhD at Yale, not in neuroscience, in English literature. Uh, and then, you know, you start going into to research in academia and through that, right, at the end of a couple of years of that, you publish a book that Malcolm Gladwell ends up calling mind-blowing. So if you could fill in some of the blanks for how a neuroscientist ends up at Yale researching Shakespeare and finding out something that Malcolm Gladwell you know, calls mind-blowing, uh, just walk us through that. So – when I started out in neuroscience, I started out in neuroscience because I just thought the most interesting thing in the whole world is the human brain. And I think that the human brain is so interesting because on the one hand, so much extraordinary goodness comes out of the human brain. I mean, you think about the imagination, the innovation, the courage, the empathy, all these extraordinary things that come out of the human brain. But then I'd also experienced the downside of my own brain. You know, I'd experienced the anger, the fear, the stupidity. And I just thought the human brain is the most powerful thing on earth. I want to understand how it works. And so that's kind of how I got into studying neuroscience and studying the brain in the first place. And so I worked for four years in this neurophysiology lab at the University of Michigan Med School. And what we were doing was essentially just studying how one brain cell communicates to another brain cell. And so what I often explain to people is that this is basically the hardware of intelligence. So um, it's the same thing that you would get if you cracked open a computer and you started to look at kind of the logic gates and those kinds of things. It's, it's the hardware, although the human brain, as we'll discuss in a little bit, is actually more complicated, more interesting, and more intelligent than computers. Um, it's that same kind of hardware approach. 
But as I was working there in the lab, um, everywhere around me in the lab was focused on this computational model of intelligence. And they were focused on the idea that basically the human brain was a sense-making apparatus, that it took in data from the environment, it processed that data to uh, arrive at conclusions. Uh, when it was operating intelligently, it used reason. Sometimes the thing called like emotion would interfere and, and cause misfires and had to be suppressed, you know, in various ways. But basically it thought of the brain as, as a huge information processor, a giant computer. And the more that I was looking at how the brain worked, the more I realized that couldn't possibly be the case. Because the thing about computers and the thing about any system that runs on logic is it requires lots and lots of data. It requires lots and lots of information. You need tons and tons of information. And you see this with AI. AI can be very smart when it has a lot of data, but with limited data, it gets very fragile very fast. And what's interesting about the human brain is the human brain can be really smart with very little information. Now, that's not to say the human brain is always smart with very little information. The human brain can be pretty dumb with very little information, but the human brain can also be incredibly intelligent with little information. And so I started to wonder about that. I said, what mechanically is going on in the human brain that's allowing it to be really, really smart with almost no information. And what I started to realize is that the human brain was running different processes than a computer. A computer is all a computer is running is symbolic logic. But I started to realize the human brain was running these other processes, processes that allowed for common sense or imagination or intuition or what we often call anti-fragility which is the ability to take negative experiences and become stronger from them. All these kinds of processes are going on in the human brain and, and you know, what was driving them? And so I thought about this for a long time and I had this, what was considered the idea to be a completely nutty idea. But I thought these processes are essentially a form of narrative. And narrative is famously low information, which is why a lot of people treat it very suspiciously. But that low information is also what allows narrative to be effective. With a very small amount of information, you can come up with a highly original plan. And so I started to think, I need to understand how narrative works better. And that's why I went off to Yale. And that's why I ended up getting the PhD at Yale in Shakespeare. Um, because he was someone who was incredibly creative, had this incredibly imaginative narrative brain. And then I went off, you know, to Stanford, worked with places like Pixar, spent a lot of time in Hollywood, worked with the Academy, uh, the people who give out the Oscars and whatnot, and did a lot of research there before finally being recruited to join Ohio State's Project Narrative, which is the world's leading academic institute for story. When you and I first met, you and I were introduced by a professor out of the University of Chicago. He passed along an article to, to a couple of us on what you were talking about, on how AI wasn't able to do this. Basically, the, the, the point of that article was that AI would never write the next great novel because of the, what you were just talking about, because of the different way of thinking that AI is all logic-based and there's this other form of thinking out there based on narrative. Um, and I know that there was a, a professor out of the Command and General Staff College, uh, Dr. Ken Long, that also just immediately gravitated to that. And I think he pulled you into CGSC, and that's how you got in there at first, right? That's right. And that was a, a, a surprising experience for me because I'll just be honest. I had a negative borderline hostile view of the Army <laughs> three years ago before I got uh, contacted because I just didn't know anything about the Army. 
And, you know, when I got this this contact from the Commander General Staff College, I was very nervous and very suspicious. And everyone in my building was nervous and very suspicious. But it all came back to this common insight that we all had that AI was actually pretty dumb. And, um, and that there had to be ways to explain human intelligence that explained why it was that humans were capable of being smart in all these situations where AI was just shattering. And, you know, the paradox here is that you can have these huge computers with tons and tons of processing power, which have access to far more information than any human. And yet a human can come in and make a much smarter and more intelligent decision. So what's going on? Well, people who, who believe in AI will give you all sorts of strange explanations for this. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you, well, they just need more data or we just need like a software tweak or something like that. Or sometimes they'll say that when computers achieve consciousness – They'll somehow become much smarter than the rest of us. The reality is most of the intelligent processes that run in the human brain are non-conscious. They have nothing to do with consciousness. We know it's a, we know it's a mechanical process. And so, so we were all kind of struggling with this sense that there's like this clear limit to AI, which is highlighting something that's unique about human intelligence. And, and um, when um, – I started to talk with uh, Ken about it, uh, you know, at the Army. What we started to discuss was the way in which the human brain had evolved uh, to be far more complex than most people realize. And so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the backstory of the human brain and, and, and why specifically it's smarter than AI. We'll take you back 550 million years ago, the origin of the first neurons – these neurons are appearing in a period of time known as the Cambrian explosion or the biological Big Bang. And so this is a period of life where everything in the world is still in the oceans. There's nothing on land yet. But you have this huge eruption of new forms of life, uh, new animal life in the seas. And that's creating this huge amount of competition for life, for resources. And these two concerns start to come to the fore, which is where intelligence starts to become really crucial. And the first concern is I got to eat. I got to find food. And how do I find food? Well, what I got to do is I got to see food. And so that's the development of vision. And vision is essentially a computational process. It involves through induction. You induct data in through your environment. That environment, uh, that data on a very simple level is binary in terms of the light is there or the light is not there or the food is there or the food is not there. And so what emerged over time out of that is your visual cortex, which is this huge computer, which is just inducting vast amounts of, of, of information and running symbolic logic. And that's a huge part of of our brain. But that part of our brain is not the only part of our brain. And in fact, that part of the brain is not the part of the brain that makes most of the decisions in life. What makes most decisions in life is another part of our brain, which had to evolve for a second problem. And that second problem, just imagine you're in this sea with lots of other things that can see that are trying to eat. One of the things they're trying to eat is you. <laughs> and so for the first time in life, Animals have to start worrying about the second problem, which is don't get eaten. I have to avoid getting eaten. How do you avoid getting eaten? What you have to do is you have to break logic. That thing that's seeing you, that thing that's looking at you, you have to act in a way that it can't predict, which means you have to be able to create new actions. 
And that ability to create new actions allows you to move, allows you to dodge, allows you to be unpredictable, keeps you alive. And that emerged out of the motor cortex of the human brain. And that process is narrative. It's narrative because the ability to create one action is the start of a story. Because when you start to chain together actions, what you get is a plot, which is a plan, which is a story. And over time, that ability to create new actions, to survive, uh, to, 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 to uh, outflank, to surprise your adversaries, developed into these higher cognitive processes, which are now conscious, um, which allow you to make plans, which allow you to innovate, which allow you to do all these other kinds of functions. And those operate on an entirely different mechanical basis than computation because they're low data, even no data. You don't need that much information to create a new action. You just need to have this power to invent motion. So these are the conversations I started to have with Ken Long. And these conversations came out of my neurophysiology background. Um, and they've been sharpened through my years in Hollywood in which we developed a series of techniques for helping individuals come up with more creative stories. And if you can come up with a more creative story, you can come up with a more creative plan for the future. So in theory, if you come up with a more creative story, you could, if you were a general, come up with a more effective strategy for battle. Or if you're a business person, you come up with a more effective business plan. You could do all this kind of stuff. But I didn't have any real experience in doing any of those things. I only had the kind of the brain science and the story science. And then I got contacted by this professor from the University of Chicago booth, uh, who you're referring to. And he was the first person who started to connect me to the business community. And that's when I started to do a lot of work in business. Um, and then Ken Long said, hey, Angus, do you want to write the army? a new strategy guide. And I said, well, what's that, Ken? He said, well, he said, do you want to write a guide, which is a simple step-by-step -step guide, which allows you to work out those muscles in your brain and strengthen them so that you can come up with more imaginative plans. And at the time, something like this had never really occurred to me, you know, uh, but I was like, well, what would be the value of that? And, you know, this is when actually you and I started to come online and started to talk about some of this stuff. But you know, one of the first things I learned from working with you and special operations is, well, the reason you need to come up with new plans is because your plan always breaks. If there's one rule of life is that the moment you have a plan, the enemy is going to break it. And so you've got to be on the ground constantly being able to come up with new plans, new plans, new plans, new plans. And, you know, this is a little bit our idea of plan or not the plan. So that was the kind of the background of kind of how I got introduced to the Army and uh, that was the kind of connection point for me to meet you and then start our work together in special operations. Yeah. So you wrote the creativity field guide for, for CGSC uh, that worked through not only the, the science behind it, but then exercises for how people can, can strengthen it, right? Because it's in our biology to be able to do this, but it's not something we train. So it's, it's just – it's like a muscle that we haven't worked out in a while. It's weak. But the more that we train it, the more reps we get, the better we are at at being able to do it, which is why you look at creative people out in Hollywood with some of the other folks you look at. Those, those are incredibly in creative people because they do it all day, every day, as opposed to you know some of the folks that we've run across at, at CGSC who hadn't really gotten the opportunity to do that and explore that creativity – to that same level. So it was all very new to them. Yeah. And it's not just CGSC. So our entire educational system trains logic. 
Our, our entire educational system trains us to think like a computer. What do computers do? They memorize stuff. They run math. They run critical thinking. They run interpretation. They run data-driven decision-making. We know that over 90% of the training and really just about 100% of the assessments in schools right now are logic-based. And this is just a double loser for us as humans. I mean, the first reason it's a loser is we're never going to outcompute a computer. Why are we training generations of kids to be second-class algorithms? But that's essentially what we're doing in school. Um, and the second reason it's a loser is because it's not training up the parts of the brain that can only do what we humans can do. It's not training up our unique human intelligence. It's not training up our ability to act with little information. And so you see happening in school now is you see people becoming addicted to stability and data and all of these things that computers need. And that's why we're seeing this crisis of anxiety in schools, of stress in schools. We're seeing all these kinds of knock-on problems as school is actually training out our nature. So even though we're all born to be creative, even though we're all born to have common sense, that's why it's called common sense, even though we're all born to have initiative, even though we're all born to understand how to read our emotions, that gets wiped out of us at school. So the irony of our school system is, is it's a lot of times making us dumber. And you know, one of the reasons that I became so fascinated to work with your community is your community has developed training to reverse that traditional training. So you know, when I first got in here, I had all these theories, <laughs> these big theories. I was like, here's how the brain works. Here's how, neuron work, here's how neurons work. You know, here's all these kinds of interesting you know, lessons I have from Hollywood and all this kind of stuff. But what I didn't have was these basic training exercises for actually helping you work out your imagination or working out your ability to make a second plan or, or, or increasing your common sense. And as I walked through community, I saw you have all these amazing training pipelines where you walk in there and the first thing that the instructors will say is forget everything you learned in school, forget all that stuff. We're here to train your common sense. And this freaks out all the recruits because the recruits are all there because the recruits have these high IQ scores. What gives you a high IQ score? Your ability to think like a computer. So all of a sudden, these recruits have spent their entire lives training themselves in various versions of computer think. And the first thing the cadre do is they break that. And they say, that's not how life works because the way that life works is you have a competitor who's constantly trying to break your plan. And it's the nature of any contested space, which is most evident in war, which is, which is evident everywhere as well, to be fog and friction. And, you know, the number one value in a biological system as opposed to a logical system is surprise, is the ability to break your enemy's plan. And logic encourages you to be optimized, which you think is making you stronger and stronger and stronger, but it's only making you stronger and stronger and stronger as long as the environment stays stable. And the moment that someone else comes in from the side, you shatter like an AI does. And a huge part of what your organization trains is that kind of guerrilla psychology where you come in against an optimized enemy and then you surprise them and break their system architecture. And I start to realize that you guys have all these amazing methods for training this stuff, but you didn't have the theory behind it because it had been developed through common sense and through intuition and through imagination, but there wasn't an overarching theory that allowed it to be systematized. And so we got together and we started to systematize some of these things. It allowed us to develop much more training and also to kind of build out the theory. And that was the kind of magic moment I feel like where this whole thing took flight. 
for me, so you and I started working on the idea of human machine teaming, right? So after I read I, after I read that article on why AI will never write the next great American novel, I was like, yeah, that he's onto something because we do think fundamentally different. I didn't have any of the background, I didn't know any of the science behind why that was, but it just made sense to me that you know AI can't do all of these things, but working together. We can do these things. If somehow you optimize or build a system where the AI computers do the things that they're great at, and then you create the human to do the things that humans really excel at, and then you bring them two together, those two forces together on the same team, suddenly it's great. Uh, that That's where that magic starts to happen. And then you and I started started kind of walking down that road and at one point, we were talking about just phenomenal leaders, leaders who in those situations where everything goes wrong and fog and friction, they just excel, right? The Napoleon, Patton, any of these historically great figures. And you know, what is it that they had that other people who didn't, who, who failed, right? Is it, is it really just that that person had all of these special gifts and you either have it or you don't. And I think that's the point where we're like, you know, we should we should go find this out. Let's go talk to some of these leaders, the leaders who have figured it out. Yeah, because, I mean, look, I mean, if you go down the Napoleon Road, then what you start to go down is you go down the road to autocracy and the idea that certain individuals are just special and are born to lead. Whereas if you go down the special operations route, you're like, no, leadership is trainable. And that's the road to democracy because then all of us can access these abilities. All of us can become as smart as Napoleon. All of us can have these abilities to think smart in these ways. Um, and, uh, you know, this is where the human AI thing becomes exciting because I've spent a lot of my career working in AI. I've spent now almost a decade working with AI. So this is something I know a lot about. And so when I say that it's fragile, when I say there are things it can't do, that's not to say I don't respect it as a technology. But what it can do is it can deal with situations where data is plentiful and stable. So any kind of a transparent system. But the moment that things get murky or the moment that, that uh, things get unstable and data starts to break – that's when AI, that's when logic collapses. That's when you need this other form of human intelligence. And so it was your idea. We'd said, let's gather up a bunch of these soft uh, leaders from all different ranks, all across special operations. And let's start to talk through the moments when they were in these situations of fog and friction, when data smashed, when their plan smashed, when they didn't know anything. And yet in those moments, they figured out these extraordinary ways to be smart, to, to have intelligence, to imagine new plans, to act with common sense. Um, and we started to interview uh, all of these individuals. We learned a lot of fascinating local insights from all of them, which helped kind of flesh out the theory, helped develop new training. But the one thing they kept coming back to again and again and again and again was there was one experience in my life, one experience which which really shaped everything. Yeah, every single special forces officer that we talked to said the exact same thing. I mean, there, there was differences in their experiences and they pointed to times in combat, but when they went back to, hey, what was that point in your life where you first experienced this? They all said the exact same thing. They all said, 
the most transformative experience where I had to start thinking differently and thinking like this was at Robin Sage. And I remember the first time I heard that, I thought like Robin Sage was a guru. I was like, who is this Robin Sage that everyone keeps accrediting with all this information, all this knowledge? And then, of course, I discovered that it's this really remarkable training experience that I was lucky enough to go down, meet the cadre, kind of walk through some of the stuff. And obviously, a lot of it, for good reasons, remains secret because that's part of the training. But what we what we can talk about is, first of all, um, a big part of what the instructors do is put you in unexpected situations. So they give you a whole bunch of information. You spend all night making a plan. And then the moment you step off, the plan breaks. <laughs> and you have to continually figure out how to keep fixing the plan, how to keep changing. You have to get comfortable. And the more you do that, the more you start to access these parts of your brain. And what I really loved about watching the training is how supportive the cadre are. So they're putting you in these incredibly difficult situations. And they're made even more difficult by the fact that you're surrounded by your peer group and you don't want to fail in front of them. So you're putting yourself under enormous psychological pressure and stress. But the cadre are always there in the moment that they see, okay, here's how I can help you. Here's how I can put you away. They give you that little assist. But if they don't need to give it to you, they let you figure out yourself. And it's a kind of way of simulating what happens in combat. But instead of having it be as it is in combat, that if you make a mistake, people die, uh, or maybe something goes wrong that you carry with you for the rest of your life, everything in that Robin Sage environment is something that you can learn from and come back from and get a second chance at. So um, the first time we went down, uh, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I've never been more scared in my life. I mean, there are bombs going off in the trees. Um, I, I saw what I thought were numerous people executed. I, I mean, I can't even tell you, I had this moment where I thought I'd walked into another world where I had just no sense of what was happening. And part of that is just the passion and commitment of the cadre and everyone involved. I mean, they commit completely. And that was what I was talking about when I was talking back to my early experience when I was 17 in the classroom is I just felt like I was surrounded by people who committed totally to training. And this is the most important thing we're going to do. We're going to bring all of the intensity of the real world into the classroom. And the only difference is going to be that in the classroom, you get a second chance. In real life, maybe you don't get that second chance. Maybe it's over for you, but we're going to bring real world into the classroom so you get a chance to practice and rehearse so that when you get out into the real thing, you can survive. It's like your third or your fourth or your fifth chance doing it in the real world. So that was just an extraordinary experience. They gave us the huge honor of inviting us back there to teach, which I have never been more flattered by in my entire life. I don't think we actually taught them anything. I just think we repeated back what they already knew. That was an interesting Interesting event because basically we just went back there and said, here's all the things we learned from you all. And what was interesting was the reaction that they had to it because the reaction was, that's exactly what I've been saying. I just wasn't saying it like that. So they were substituting words uh, like gut instinct uh, or, or common sense when you were coming back in and cleaning up and saying, hey, when you say that, this is what you see when you do that activity while we're scanning your brain, which I think was, was really illuminating for them to be like, okay, it's not just this thing that we sort of say we do to, to train the next batch of Green Berets. This is actually the thing that we have found that works through decades of operational experience and, you know, Operators going out and deploying and sometimes learning, learning these lessons the hard way. 
and then coming back and they figured out these little little lessons to transfer to the next generation. And you were just able to come in there and say, hey, this is what I think you mean when you say that. And it was just like the, the light bulb would go on. They're like, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, we were able to pinpoint the science that, that basically all of their intuitions were essentially revealing these deep secrets about the human brain that they hadn't put together because they hadn't kind of gone under the hood and, and, and couldn't see all the kind of machinery in there that, like we could. And that, we discovered, had a great advantage for, for a few reasons. I mean, so first of all, just being able to go in there and say, here's why this works – provides just a huge level of foundational confidence in the curriculum, that this isn't just something that a bunch of people came back with, you know, and just randomly instituted. Because when you first go into Robin Sage, there is there is a kind of persistent level of anarchy about it or, or, or just kind of chaos and confusion because it's important to set that tone. You know, you want to always be a little bit unstable. And I think sometimes as an outsider, you might come in and be like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? What are the reasons for this? And we were able to come in and say, well, here are the reasons for it. This is how it's working in the brain. Another thing we were able to do is we were able to tackle this problem, which is this well-known problem in life, which is that the best leaders are the worst at training leaders, which is another way of saying that the better you are naturally at something, the less effective you are at explaining it to other people because it's obvious to you. You're just like, well, this is how I do it. You know, if you're a great guitarist, you don't know how to explain to people how to play the guitar. You just play the guitar. If you're a great surgeon, you don't know how to explain to people how to be a great surgeon. You just are a great surgeon. It's the technical name for it is, is, is the problem of tacit knowledge. And what we were able to do when we went in was start to, to say, you know, um, here on an organizational level are all your most effective and successful operators. Here's what's going on in their brains. And now we can explain to you how to take that knowledge and then take it out of those operators and not only, you know, move it around your organization, but take it outside your organization. What we can do is we can take the wisdom of special operations and we can take it into businesses or we can take it into schools and we can start to take all of the huge breakthroughs and insights that have occurred in this community and spread them through the rest of America so we can give that kind of empowerment that comes from being able to make a second plan or from being able to operate without data. Yeah, I, I think that's when things started to get really interesting, right? Because it's one thing to go back and say, hey, you guys are doing all the right things. Keep doing exactly what you're doing, but here's, here's why this is working. But then you went and you took the things you learned from special forces and you gave it to third graders. Yeah, that was one of the most, actually, I'll be honest with you. If I was scared at Robin Sage, I was more scared working with the third graders. I don't know if you've ever been in a room with, you know, 20 or 30 third graders. I mean, uh, the joke that, that people often say is that uh, uh, I experienced, I, Angus Fletcher, experienced a, a total loss of situational control immediately <laughs> upon being put in that room with the third graders. And uh, they just have so much energy, so much intensity, but they're also on the edge of a tragic cliff. We know that third grade is the beginning point where they start to experience a lot of problems. Their creativity starts to go down. Um, their anxiety starts to increase. And in general, just their self-reliance or their self-leadership starts to drop. And why is that? Well, because they're becoming part of the school system now. And everything they're doing is math and memorization and interpretation and critical thinking and standardized tests and all these kinds of things. And those things aren't bad. But when they're the only thing you're doing, 
you're not developing that other part of your brain that we've talked about, which is the ability to think for yourself, to develop resilience, to bounce back, to have second plans, all these kinds of things. And so we went in there and we essentially developed Robin Sage for third graders. And we've now run this for a couple of years at an Ohio uh, school district, shout out to Worthington Schools. And uh, we've, um, we've run it with the help of the Ohio State um, uh, School of Education. Patton Cizo, a professor, has been an amazing collaborator. That research has been scientifically validated, has been published in, in uh, peer-reviewed uh, journals and has been you know, kind of all over the internet. And the National Councils of Teachers of English um, have sort of formally recognized it and helped us put it out there. And what we were able to show is that this training – this special operations training, when we gave it to third graders, first of all, it made them more effective at solving their own problems. So when you gave them a hard problem that they themselves had experienced, and by hard problem, what I mean is they're experiencing problems at home. So maybe their parents are arguing, or maybe they have an older sibling who's giving them a hard time, or maybe there are peer problems that they're struggling with. These are all real world problems that you don't get to talk about in school because you're too busy talking about math. But when we gave them this training, they suddenly became much more effective at coming up with answers to these problems. And then we did this really mean thing to them. After we trained them to answer these problems, we then took them into a room, you know, and we gave them a problem and they gave us an answer. And then we looked them in the eye and we said, your answer didn't work. It failed. What are you going to do now? And what was amazing was that they not only came up with another answer, but their second answer was more effective was more imaginative and more effective. And so they actually got better under pressure. They got better under stress. And so we saw an increase, not just in creativity, but in self-efficacy and resilience. And that's the real gift of this training is it just unlocks your natural ability. We were all born because you know our species evolved long before the stabilities of of the suburbs and supermarkets and all these things we kind of take for granted in America as providing a sense of normality. I mean, we evolved in these incredibly unstable circumstances where life was constantly changing, where there's a huge degree of volatility. And by having this training, it allows you to develop that part of your brain if you need it. Now, if you don't need it, if it turns out that the supermarket is open, great, you know? Uh, if it turns out that, you know, um, the AI is giving you the perfect answer, great, you know? Go with logic, go with stability, go with all of those things. But in those moments where surprises happen, and as I think we've all experienced over the last four or five years in this country, there can be some big surprises, you know? When you have those moments, you don't freak out. You instead hit the switch, go into Green Beret Brain, access that part of yourself and figure out how to shift your situation in a positive way. Yeah. And I mean, it worked in third graders and then uh, the national council for teachers of English, like, Hey, this is amazing. We want to start including this curriculum. So I took the, the same techniques and I ran them with college students, right? So took a group of ROTC cadets and went through the exact same thing. And we had the exact same results. Like eerily, statistically, they were very similar on the results that we had for these experiments. So now same training works for Green Berets, very different population from third graders, very different population from ROTC cadets in the Southeast United States. 
you're running it with corporate America, with C-suite executives having the exact same – vastly different populations responding the same way to these techniques. Yeah. And, you know, I was stunned actually when the numbers came back because, you know, we've – so to be clear, even though my lab has run a lot of studies, a lot of these other studies have been run independently of my lab. So this isn't just you know me verifying my own science. Uh, the Army has run its own large-scale study uh, through Dr. Richard McConnell at the Command and General Staff College um, involving, I think, about 100 participants. You ran that study, um, and uh, other people have run independent studies. And what we see is extraordinary. We see that with a fairly small amount of training – uh, you get what is known as a as a as a cones D of essentially one, which is a shift of a single standard deviation. So to put that in the terms of IQ or something like that, that would be like if your IQ went up about fifteen points all of a sudden as a result of this training. How long are we talking about? Because the training we did was only, I think, two and a half hours. That's right. Yeah, you don't have to have because the point is is that your brain has all this stuff there. It's just not using it. And what's key in those moments when data starts to disappear is confidence and initiative. So what happens is is when a situation starts to shift, you actually have a small window, a, a rapid window where you have to go aggressively into this other way of thinking. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And so what we were basically seeing is that people were becoming artificially dumb because they've been so habituated by school to hesitate and wait for more data. And that waiting for more data froze them and didn't allow them access to their national intelligence. And a huge part of what we were doing here was simply just giving them back their national intelligence. Now, you can go beyond that. You can then do more training and bulk up that part of your brain. But just at the very beginning, it has this immediate effect. And one thing I just want to put out there is one of the joys for me of this is I was talking earlier about how I had myself not had a positive view of the United States Army. And to be, you know, frank about it, I mean, I didn't think of the – I mean, if you'd said to me, you know, hey, Angus, you should go and learn about intelligence, I wouldn't have thought that the first place I would go is the United States Army. And in fact, there's a lot of joking within the Army itself, right? You know, military intelligence is an oxymoron. I mean, we've heard all these kinds of jokes, you know. But one of the things that's extraordinary for me is to realize, no – the army does have a history of being able to unlock that form of democratic intelligence, that thing that doesn't come from above based on pre-existing rules and logic, but that individuals find within themselves. And when I've gone out and worked in school districts and I've worked with national councils of teachers of English, these are not organizations that naturally work with the army. And in fact, many of the teachers I work with you know, are concerned about the army. You know, I mean, they associate the army with the military industrial complex. You know, they, they associate the army with dropping bombs on problems to solve them. And when you come in and say, no, actually, the point of special operations is to empower communities. It's to teach them to solve their own problems. And the more you teach communities to solve their own problems, the more democracy naturally occurs because people stop looking to someone else to solve their problems. When you're looking to someone else to solve your problems, that's where hierarchies come from because then you get strong men coming in and saying, I'll solve your problems for you, you know. But if you believe, hey, I can solve my own problems, you start to form teams of problem solvers and you start to form democratic communities. And that's the big thing that I discovered that special operations is really about. It's really about going in and helping people unlock this intelligence in themselves, making everyone out there to the extent that we can be uh, part of special forces. And 
that kind of transition, when you see people starting to realize, oh, you know, the U.S. Army isn't here uh, to to kind of, you know, bully and intimidate other countries. And it's not part of this kind of, you know, imperial scheme to to rob other nations of their treasure. Certainly, the U.S. Army has been used for many purposes, which many people within the U.S. Army would disagree with because it is ultimately an institute – of the uh, civil authorities. But the core purpose of special operations and the core purpose of the army is to spread democracy and protect democracy. And how do you do that? You do that by giving this gift, which, as we have discovered, uh, is something you can teach teach at any level. We've talked a lot about where it came from and, and you know, kind of the genesis of it. But let's briefly touch on some of the key highlights of exactly what it is that we're talking about when we're saying hey, here's how you have a superpower inside your head that's probably just lying dormant. And here's what you can do to unlock that, to help you become more resilient, to help you come up with a second plan. So what are we talking about? So the number one thing that I always want people to start with is this thing that the Army calls exceptional information. And uh, I actually learned the term exceptional information from Dr. McConnell at CGSC, but it's in Army handbooks. You can read it. It's uh, a term that gets used a lot inside special operations. And exceptional information means an exception to a rule. It's something that happens and completely shifts your sense of what can happen in that space. And the reason this is important is, first of all, because when computers hit an exception, they dismiss it as noise or they regress it to the mean because there can be no exceptions in logic. But the human brain evolved to detect exceptions because an exception is the sign of an emergent threat or opportunity. It's a sign that something is changing in your environment. And so the first thing you want to do is you want to open your mind to these exceptions. One of the things that we found extraordinary is that children are many, many, many times better at spotting exceptions than adults. And generally, the more successful you are in business, say you're a senior executive, the worse you are than everyone around you. Because modern society prioritizes efficiency. And if you have an efficiency psychology, you're always filtering out these exceptions because you're saying, oh, they're a distraction, they're noise. I have to focus on what I know. Whereas what that means is that if you keep thinking like that, you become incredibly vulnerable because you're not aware to changes in your environment and you don't adapt fast enough. So we start to realize, okay, kids have this ability. It's trained out of them by school. It's trained out of them by business. How do you get it back? And so we started to talk to operators and we discovered a couple of things that I found fascinating. The first is that they just talked about traveling. And they said, just when you are constantly moving to different places, you're constantly seeing people act differently than you expect. And when someone acts differently than you expect, you can judge them. You can say, oh, that's not American or that's not how I would do things. And that's what logic would do. Logic would say, that's the exception that proves the rule. Logic would say, dismiss that as noise. But what your low data intelligence does is it says, what if there's something valuable there? What if I could learn from that person? And so the first thing that we discovered that, that, that a lot of these, these operators did is they just spent a lot of time moving around through different cultures, different communities, being open and non-judgmental to different ways of doing stuff. The second thing that I found fascinating is a lot of them spent a lot of time reading science fiction, near-term science fiction. Uh, this came up a lot. I mean, I saw all of these guys reading the science fiction. And, uh, you know, science fiction is basically, what if I changed one thing about the way the world worked and then I imagined that forward? 
So, you know, um, what if I imagine that we could fly to other planets? Now let's just take that and just take that and, and keep pushing that forward. What would the other planets look like? Where would we go? How would we explore? That's just a simple science fiction exercise. What that is, is that's the basis of how your brain evolved to innovate, to imagine, to create. Because it sees an exception and it doubles down on it. Famous example, Nikola Tesla. What did he do? He looked around. He saw that everyone was using DC motors. He said, hey, you know, what's the exception to the rule? The exception to the rule is the AC motor. What if I double down on the AC motor? Boom, you have our modern world where electricity is everywhere. Same thing with Vincent van Gogh. Vincent van Gogh looks around. He says, hey, look, everyone seems to think that yellow is a minor color. But then I look at the sun. The sun seems like a pretty major thing. What if I made yellow everywhere? What if I took that exception and made the exception the new rule? And so if you look at his painting, Sunflowers, everything in the entire painting is yellow, different shades of yellow. And I can tell you that painting's worth a lot of money right now and it changed art. Marie Curie, uh, the rule in her time was that energy could not come from inside the atom. But then she saw this exception, which was radioactivity. And she started to imagine what would happen if we could unleash the energy of every atom. And, you know, of course, what you get then is modern cosmology, modern physics, uh, our understanding that really every star out there in the cosmos is emitting radiation, is emitting energy. Um, so it's a simple process, but to start to train your brain to not judge things that are different, but to lean into them as exceptions and then double down on them. Say, what if everybody did it that way? That's how children think. That's how special operators think. That's how innovators think. That's how entrepreneurs think. That's how anyone who successfully innovates society thinks. Yeah, so basically, essentially what they're saying is not, that's weird, it doesn't fit. It's, that's weird, tell me more. Exactly. And that's also something else that we, we saw a lot when we were doing these interviews with these successful leaders, um, was they were really good at asking questions at figuring out what that person was saying about them and what was unique about that individual. They were f identifying the exceptional information about the members of their team and then deep diving on that so they understood exactly who that person was. And they were just – they were asking phenomenal questions. Yeah, and part of what we discovered is that they had a kind of secret rule behind their questions – which we found, we went through a whole bunch of these army manuals and then we sort of observed it in, in reality too, which is that they did not start with why. So, um, you know, this is a phrase obviously popularized by Simon Sinek, start with why, start with why, start with why. These people did the opposite. They reserved the why, they suspended why, and they would ask all these other questions about it. Because when you ask why, you prompt a judgment, you prompt an explanation. And you miss out on the opportunity to surface new pieces of interesting information. So instead, they asked a lot of what, how, when, those kinds of questions. And they leaned into things that surprised them and then asked more questions about them. Again, not asking why. And um, that was a kind of big revelation for me. And we've taken that technique and we've used that all across businesses. And we've shown that that very, very simple technique has a huge impact on your ability to spot exceptional information. Yeah, which is – really saying the same thing that Simon Sinek is saying. We're starting with why, but to start with understanding why, you don't just immediately jump to that conclusion because humans are really good at jumping to conclusions using why. Yeah. Why is the thing, why is the superpower? 
Once you know someone's why, you can predict their behavior. Once you know why the world is doing what the world is doing, you know, why there's a particular reason for that phenomena, you can predict that phenomena. But the problem is, is that most of us, when we ask why, jump to an old why in our brain. We don't take the opportunity to discover a new why. And so the longer that you can suspend your brain in that state of searching for a new why, the more likely it is to make a breakthrough. And I think that's the problem that most of us have is a judgment is another term for bringing up an old why, using an old why to explain the situation. Well, of course that happened. That's just how that person is. Or, you know, that's how life is. But what we find with imaginative and effective successful people is they pause on those events and they come up with a new explanation for that that they then test. And that's, of course, the basis for science and that's the basis for technology. And that's also the basis for new art, and new culture. So what's next? Where do we where do we go from here? Well, this is a great question, Tom, because I'll be honest with you, we've already gotten so much further than I ever imagined uh, uh, that, that, we, that we would get in the first place. I mean, I think the first thing that I would say, honestly, is I want to continue to develop and build my relationships with the United States uh, Army and the special operations community. The one thing that I have really come to believe is, is the value of what the Army calls um, the force multiplier. And, you know, the force multiplier is this idea of how do you go in and have a, a huge impact on a situation um, with the kind of you know minimal uh, 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 payout yourself? And I've started to, to, to realize that what the US Army and I both believe is that education is the ultimate force multiplier because if you can give someone that ability to, to think and to train themselves and to become a leader themselves, you're ultimately, you know, you're, you're, you're multiplying democracy, you're, you're multiplying their ability to, to, to train other people to do the kinds of things that we want to do. So I personally, um, in addition to working more with the army, I want to spend more time in educational communities, want to spend more time teaching and training, and also, you know, more time with some of these, um, other, uh, organizations that have reached out to us. So simple example, NASA. NASA came to us and they said, you know, we're having this problem. And the problem is, is that we hire all these brilliant young scientists and engineers and that it takes them two years on average to propose big new ideas once they get inside our system. And that's a problem because by the time they've been inside our system for two years, the big, bold ideas they're posing are actually the ideas we already had <laughs> because they're from the system. You know, What we want is we want them to start at the very beginning, before they become socialized, before they start to think like everyone else in NASA. We want them to bring their unique ideas from outside into the system. But how do we do that? And so what we've decided to do is we're going to, we've been talking about maybe building a little kind of almost uh, accelerator lab for when people, or an imagination lab for when people come in to NASA and they spend a week there learning what's unique about their thoughts, stretching their thoughts to new NASA projects before they've been inside NASA. And then we partner them with some senior mentors so that the two communities come together and are able to take advantage of all those unique and different ideas. So I think there's a million different ways we could take this. But you know, the main thing for me is just to keep taking the insights um, from special operations keep taking those lessons learned about human intelligence, about what we are capable of, about the enormous powers that all of us are carrying around with us to be smart and to solve problems without force and without violence, 
but instead solve them by coming up with new answers that work better for everybody and kind of outthink the old problems. Take all of that intelligence and start to make that more accessible because I'm going to be honest with you, our country right now is in a hard place. And, um, you know, I say that as someone who's an immigrant who chose to become an American uh, and so who loves America perhaps more than people who were born here. But to me, I mean, America is just a wonderful country. And we're struggling now with a lot of internal division. We're struggling now in, in, in a lot of ways. And I think many of the answers we're seeking are answers we already have and are answers that are locked away in different communities. And to me, a lot of those answers lie in special operations. And the more that I can do to kind of help take those answers, make them transparent to people outside the community, and kind of give that wisdom of ages onto the next generation, uh, I feel the more that I'll be sort of fulfilling my mission here. I'm sold. I'm all in, Angus. Um, I think that about does it for our time. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, first of all, for coming onto the on the podcast and spending about an hour just talking through some of this stuff. But then you know, thank you on a professional level for coming in and helping us figure out some of the the why behind – what it is that we we're doing here within the community and then helping us share those lessons more broadly into, into the community. Cause I think that's, I think that's really important, right? Cause eventually those third graders are going to graduate from high school and some of them are likely to end up in SOF. And even if they don't end up in SOF, they're still part of an America that is better equipped to solve whatever problem comes their way. So um, I'm very grateful for the work you're doing. Uh, and however, you know, I can, I can help, whether that's from within the Army community. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just one lieutenant colonel. Um, but, you know, however we can help make, make the next generation stronger, um, I think we should absolutely do that. So, so thank you. Yeah, man. And I want to give you a personal thanks too. I mean, my lab was a hard target. You know, I mean, I was someone who had no relationship with the army and had a hostile view of the army. And I was surrounded by a community that had a hostile view of the army. And to me, you personally are the ultimate force multiplier. I mean, you came in, uh, you were able to activate me. You were able to build trust with me because I was able to see that actually you and I had a shared mission in this. And you were just able... To, to, to bring me along. And now we are, you know, publishing articles in Harvard Business Review. We are working with all of these businesses. We are doing extraordinary things at schools. And we have all these other partners. And all of that comes out of the initiative that you displayed as someone inside special operations. And of course, you know, um, I want to give back to special operations uh, because of that. And at the same time, say to people, hey, you can partner with special operations without being an operator. You know, I mean, I'm, sci I'm a scientist, you know, uh, we, we don't want an, an America that's composed entirely of special forces, right? You know, there are other, there are other ways to be, but those partnerships, because we're different, because we have different perspectives and different skills, that's what makes America extraordinary. So I do want to thank you personally. You have changed my life. The army has changed my life and I'm here to serve. All right, and that is it for this episode. Appreciate uh, Colonel Gaines and Dr. Fletcher from coming by and talking about creative uh, leadership. So see you next time. Yeah.